welcome back to the SBP podcast, Mobile Filmmaking. I'm Susie Botello. I'm your host, and you're listening to episode 140, and I want to wish you a very happy new year. Well, I picked a really good night uh, to record this episode of our podcast. <laughs> our guest is in the UK. And we are here in Southern California, in San Diego, and there's a storm happening right outside right now. So this could get to be a little exciting. Uh, who knows what could happen? It, you know, it's it's a mystery what could happen through our conversation with our guest. And uh, in any case, let's go ahead and uh, talk to our guest now. Let me let me introduce you to him. <laughs> you already know, but our friend Chris Collier is in the London area uh, close to Brighton, and um, I wanted to welcome him for the first time to the show. Hi, Chris. Hi, thank you. Thanks for uh, inviting me on. Yes, of course. Um, Chris, uh, I wanted to share with our listeners that you, uh, we, we bring onto this show a lot of uh, filmmakers and you're a filmmaker but not one that is very typical in our show uh, you are one of my uh, favorite uh, genre filmmakers documentaries and um, I w I'm really happy and excited to share your stories and, and share some tips and, and how you do it uh, with our listeners, and I think having someone like you on is ideal. Um, you made a documentary, uh, which is uh, really, really well done. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough uh, to watch it. It's called Fright Fest Beneath the Dark Heart of Cinema. And I wanted you to share a little bit uh, just a little bit about the synopsis of that documentary uh, before I ask you some, you know, a little more about you, the person behind that film. Okay. Um, yeah, thanks. Um, so the film itself is a um, documentary about um, a horror film festival in London uh, that takes place every year called Fright Fest. It's been going on for about 20 years. Um However, um, it's also really underneath about a subject that I recurs in, in a number of the films that I make, which is about building a family outside of your family. So that's the real underlying theme of the, of the film. So it looks through the history of the film, but underneath it, you've got um, the relationship between the people who attend the film and... Um, their relationship with each other's and the people who run the festival. So it's kind of a personal story, which um, I think actually, as you say, does fit well with what you do, because I think um, using a mobile phone to make a documentary, you could actually 
tell some very personal stories, which um, are the, the kind of areas that I like to work in. Um, share a little bit about you before we go all in on this documentary mm. film that you made and use that as a as a really nice platform for documentary filmmaking. Like, yeah, so... Where did you yeah, get I, started as a to, to want to go into film? <laughs> so I, I started out as a musician and I um, wrote some music for film a long time ago and then became a sound designer and then I progressed from that to doing some sound editing on films and then just built up relationships basically by working in various sound roles and then I um, started to work as a producer and I produced a large number of DVD extras, um, trailers, promotional material for films. Uh, then gradually I began to, as a lot of producers do, decide that they want to direct. So I began to direct some of the some of the DVD extras. Um, also did some uh, work on my own with a, with a um, an artist, a painter. So we did some experimental films that uh, played as parts of uh, exhibitions and galleries in the UK. Um, That's interesting. And, <laughs> and then, yeah, so the, the other things that I've done have, have been sort of quite experimental um, uh, cinema. And then the other side of that has been this, this documentary work, which really has been films about film. Um, and then so this idea came along for this um, and I thought it was time to make a feature next documentary and, and at that point it was I'd really decided that documentary films were the, the films that I wanted to make and I wanted to move at that point into making feature length ones. Now I know that uh, for people who are listening or friends uh, that we talk about you know, uh, making making films with smartphones, and we're gonna definitely touch on that here. But um, mm. you shot this documentary um, with a traditional film camera, a movie camera, cinema camera. <laughs> yeah, so actually, a, a variety of different cameras because, um, uh, yeah, we started shooting on a. Um, black magic camera a 4k black magic camera uh, and then uh, later on we moved over to a sony camera i worked on a film doing the sound with a guy that uh, called philip bloom who is uh, one of the sort of pioneers of dslr filmmaking and i watched him on this film which um I'd agreed to record the sound with for no money so that I could be on the set and watch him work. Mm -hmm. And um, he used Sony cameras. So at that point, we switched to Sony cameras. So, um, yeah, the, the second, it's all interspersed with each other, but the second part of the shooting, which was over a, quite a long period, 
uh, were shot on Sony cameras, which meant that we were able to shoot in the dark in the cinema, which was something that was very difficult with the Blackmagic cameras because they don't, well, they, I don't know what they do now, um, but they didn't react at the time particularly well to low light, whereas the Sony was really good in low light. Um, and from that point forward, I've used Sony cameras. However, a lot of the footage that's archival was shot on all kinds of things. And there's actually a piece of footage um, quite early on that we gathered which we don't actually know what it was shot on, but we think it might have been shot on something like a Nokia 3310. It's incredibly low resolution, but it was the only place that somebody had filmed Guillermo del Toro and Ron Perlman, and it was a piece of footage that we needed to use. So we used it, and I think as you watch the film, by the point it plays, you're into the film and the story, I hope, and you don't notice that this is something that is, I mean, one of the first mobile phones that would have shot video. Mm. Um, and, and what was it called a few again? seconds of it. Um, I think it was probably a, one of the first Nokia, you know, mobile phones that did video. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, there's various other bits. There are, there are a few other pieces that we gather from people where... Um, something had happened there wasn't a camera there but somebody had captured it on a mobile phone and we'd used that so it's multiple formats all throughout the film i mean we shot we shot the interviews at 4k but the film and um, the final dcp was um a 1080p so we we obviously we had a bit of latitude with the 4k but it meant that we could use lower resolution footage that people had shot over a long period of time on whole host of cameras. Yeah, I, I working myself uh, also as a media manager uh, on on various promotional and documentary uh, films uh, videos. Mm. I call them videos. I mean, <laughs> uh, for me, um, and uh, we would get things. I remember having um, some. Uh, you know, eight millimeter film that we had to get, we we sent it out to a lab to get transferred uh, into digital form. Um, yeah. And, but I had to digitize, I mean, I had to find an old Hi8 camera from the early 90s uh, in order to digitize into Final Cut Pro and to digitize the uh, Hi8 footage. Um, yeah. and scan a lot of photographs to do the, the, the Ken Burns effect, you know, for motion yeah. to bring into video. And, and those are just things that happen a lot um, in documentary filmmaking because uh, it's just so, you know, it's still in motion. It's still, it's very highly based on the story. Um and but a one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about was, um, you know, when you write a screenplay, a script for a, a film, it's it's always fluid. There's always a little change here and there, but it's pretty it's pretty set. And with documentary filmmaking, it's super fluid. Um, and, and a lot of times you're writing it as you go because of the discovery, you know, factor. 
Um, can you share? Uh, I know you you shot this in around 2018. Is that or or when it was yeah, finished? Yeah. yeah, that's when it was finished. Yeah, it was. It, was, it took um, took two years. So okay. Yeah, and it was finished in 2018. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the other the other difference. Unless you're you know making Lord of the Rings or something uh, that it doesn't normally take that long to make a feature film. But a documentary, yeah, there's there's so much, there's so much, how should I call it? The, the production meetings are constant mm. uh, throughout mm. the process, right? Yeah. Like, where do you go yeah. next? Who are you going to talk to? Your protagonists in your film were the directors of the film festival. And those were the, the key people that you were interviewing, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they... They turned you on to other people, and then you had to go back and, you know, verify things and, and things like that, right? Yeah, so I I knew them before I'd worked shooting, actually a bit like the work that you do. So I'd, I'd gone in as a freelance and shot all of the um, media output for their festival for a few years. So I knew them, and I'd witnessed some of their... Um, fallings out and things that had happened during festivals, which is something that you get to see a bit of in the fest in the film. And so, it, the I knew how how they were, and I knew from the festival that there was this sort of family family feel around how the fans um, behaved in their interactions with the festival. So I. Well, if I just tell you the story about how it how it came about, because we were we were previously working on this other documentary, which I won't talk about because um, it may be that at some point we can start it again. But we we were, it was a film it was a film about a person, and we'd got part way into the film um, and shooting just interview sections, which is how I'd normally start shooting something and it became apparent that they'd been talking to somebody else about making a film about them and that other person hadn't shot anything um but i spoke to them and they told me the film that they envisaged and actually i thought that they had a they had a closer better take and i said okay well we'll we'll stop uh, which probably in hindsight was a mistake because their film never never emerged but um, we, so we went from one day shooting a film to the next day not having a film. And I knew the guys from Fright Fest. Um, and I was, and I was literally just on YouTube, um, being of a certain age, watching old documentaries about Nirvana and punk and things like that. And one of the, the um, organizers, Alan, was very involved in the UK punk scene. He worked in Vivian Westwood's shop and he appeared in one of these documentaries. And I just thought to myself, there's, there's a lot more to these people than people know about. Uh, and that was just the starting point. So then getting to the writing process, which you were talking about with that one, I, because the three of them, there's quite a lot of information about they appear in books and things. I was able to write the the basis of the script um 
but obviously interviewing people who go to the film festival where there is no biography about you find that you do have to shoot very long interviews and then almost write it with those interviews mm. but um i just say that what obviously i had the idea and then i pitched it to those four guys and i said Look, I, what i need from you is to be able to interview you individually for six hours and that you know at the other end you're not going to get any final cut over this i'm going to make the film i'm going to make um unfortunately they, they agreed to that because if, had they wanted um an individual final cut on the film then you know or to agree what how the film represented the festival then you know you you never would have got anything agreed but fortunately they were fine with it anyway so yeah, there there is some yeah. something about documentary filmmaking which is the the ethics of it too mm. which is um it, it yeah. becomes a promotional documentary if if the the if they would have had a, a good hand in it, right? Yeah. And yeah. Um, and then at the same time, you as the filmmaker don't want to put words in their mouth, um, hmm. you know, want to leave them alone when they're sharing their story, you know, during the interviews. That's right, yeah. So it, you're exactly right. You you want to make sure that you've got enough freedom, freedom to tell the story without somebody trying to uh, manipulate it but then by the same measure you want to make sure that you're not manipulating that story um, and that you can get to the truth of it but also there's there you were talking about your kind of the moral responsibility there is a responsibility if somebody says something and you know that that they didn't mean to say that or they would be hurt by that yeah um, if it's you do have a responsibility. Now, it may be that you choose to use that. And you'd have to weigh that up. If it was somebody, for example, a, a politician who was a public figure, who that's what they did and that's what they were measured by, you might um, choose to use that um, more readily than you would a person who has just agreed to be in a documentary and has just said the wrong thing. Um, so yes, you have a responsibility to just think about what it is that you're putting out there, particularly when you're putting people who aren't normally in the public eye out there, people who are not used to being interviewed as well. Yeah, because, you know, they're not experts um, at no. being interviewed as well. <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, for example, victims, you know, are one that can yeah. uh, say things that, you know, you realize later if I share this, um, it could put them in danger, right? Or or yeah. or people could see could you know it would turn the documentary into a, a di the story into a different direction, and I'd have to fulfill by filling up the holes and and things like that. So and that happens with documentaries. Did that happen with this at all at any point where you found out things while you were interviewing people and said you know. Um, maybe that's not the, the, the most ethical question for you to answer, <laughs> uh, but without sharing details, you know, there were some things you were going this way and you thought, aha, light bulb comes up and, you know, now you want to 
you know, uh, wander this way a little bit more than you thought you would? There, there were some things that were that were personal to um, some people involved in the festival uh, that we started to explore, but we we did get to a point where there was where there were some bits that we thought actually using this would be um, actually impinging a little bit on someone's um, personal life. And even though they were happy with it, we didn't feel comfortable with it and we didn't need it. Often also you, you'll find that there are whole areas that you start to explore, but you just don't actually have time to explore them. And then it's weighing off which bits you're going to use because, yeah, you don't really have the same amount of time that you had if you, if you were making Lord of the Rings to include <laughs> every little uh, every Detail. little bit. You've got to, You've really got to get to the truth of the story and that's it and try and keep it and i always try to keep things at a, at a very sensible length yeah it's almost like you're thinking i mean it's like an editor where where you're constantly yeah. throwing things out i mean you probably shot a hundred percent of all the footage and then maybe ten percent uh made it into the documentary right yeah, the the shooting ratio with the documentaries I've seen much higher than a normal film. I mean, yeah. if you think the film's um, just under ninety minutes, but um, each of those, uh, so the four organisers got shot for six hours each. Uh, most of the people who appear in it, and some people appear in it for about ten seconds, they would have been interviewed for several hours. There are. Um, all of the archival footage has been was shot over a sort of 10 year period and there are hundreds and hundreds of hours of that um, so it is really an it is really an editing job a lot of the actual writing i have an idea of the structure that i want the film to to follow and how i want the story to unfold but you discover a lot of that in the editing so if I give you an example, the, the film that we're just finishing now is a film that's called Title Year, Director Place, and it's about a man who's been making a list of every film in the world since the late 1960s. And he actually has the Guinness Book of Records record for the largest film database. So IMDb don't have the record. He, this guy has the record, and he's one man on his own. Wow. Um. However, there's absolutely no information about him out there. So everything came from the interviews. And he was, I interviewed him for several days. Well, that's going to come down to, you know, a 90 minute documentary. Um, and ha that has to be made um, in the editing room. So, you know, you start with talking about how, how someone's life started and you talk about their life and I know that I obviously want to talk about his film database but I have no idea what he's going to say to me about the rest of his life and so it's about when you get those key points recognizing them so that when you go back to do an, the second interview you've got another set of questions so you're writing it mm -hmm. as you discover so that's the tricky thing and that'll be the case I guess with for people making documentaries that are personal that are not about famous people 
where there isn't a lot of background information is that you are going to discover things and you are going to get you know you need to make a note of that and go right well that's the, an area i'm going to explore next time and then uh, continue on through until you think you've covered everything it is so um, exciting yeah. to uh i'm actually uh fiddling with my hands here uh going gosh it just i'm getting nostalgic um because it's it is all discovery it's very it's very challenging you know um you interview somebody you don't like you said you don't know what they're gonna say and then you listen you got to sit down with a set of headphones and and play everything back you don't really have i mean other than someone talking right uh you've got to fill up the the video you know the the script for a documentary speaking to uh to our friends uh on the other side here um is usually a two column script and you have your audio on one side and then you have audio meaning the narration the story the the narrator the voice Mm -hmm. of the people everything you hear pretty much and then on the on the other side you have all the visuals everything you're going to see and it's really cool because you get to see as you're reading along um, and also the timing of it you have to fill up that space you don't you don't want to just have the audio and the person on camera mm-hmm. on the screen the entire time so you're sort of listening to it but in your head while you're listening to it right you're plotting the visuals you're going to need so when you go back for the next set of questions you're also asking them for material for that right yeah that's right yeah with with with, with obviously with the Friday first documentary there was uh, you i could make a traditional script like that so you you have an idea of uh, so you write the script. That's, this is the bit that I think people um, often don't realize is that you you understand wh- where you understand what the story is. You've got to ask the question that gives them the words that you don't know what the words are yet, but they're the words that are going to fit to write the bit that's in the script. Mm-hmm. So if you don't ask the question, you don't have the story. So you've got to have a set of questions that unlocks the story and then obviously you can have an idea of visuals as you write that because you've written a story in advance. Something like this other film where the story is so vague, it's a man did this, why did he do it? And what's he doing now? And what else can we discover about him? That all there is is, is a set of questions. There isn't anything really visual. The visual part comes as we uh, put a skeleton together in the in the editing software and start to think about the visual elements and then I'll go back and maybe shot some scenes and with this one um, a little like the other one we did a little bit of reconstruction before but this one's got a lot more reconstruction in it there's there's stuff that's shot rather like a narrative film so go back reshoot you know in a you know in a lit scene some things that happened um, you, you don't you don't have to follow those rules of you need to know in advance exactly what you're going to get. I guess is what I'm saying. You you might find you can do that if you know the story, but it may be if you're really discovering the story, you just need to get the person to tell you the story first. Yeah, you you sort of have an outline and a and a 
a, a skeleton type of a of a script. Um, mm. One of the things that I noticed on on your documentary uh, for the Fright Fest, um, you and and now it makes sense because I wanted to comment on this to you. Um, you have some very uh, artistic shots uh, that uh, when you're shooting B-roll, it can be, it, it, you know, a lot of people think of B-roll as boring. You know, you're mm. panning and tilting, you're covering this, you're doing wide shots, you're doing close-ups, you do multiple takes of the same subject, right? Uh, so that you can experiment later um, in the editing room. But the thing is, that's really neat. And now I get where it comes, where it came from with you, with your experimental filmmaking and artistic filmmaking. Uh, some of the B-roll shots that you shot, that you could tell they weren't just footage that was already shot, that you shot that, uh, yeah. was really interesting. The juxtaposition of those shots with what we were listening to. Uh, was really really cool um so I, I just wanted to tell you that that i i loved those they didn't go by me <laughs> like it was <laughs> you know uh it, it it was great you did a really good job with that and i think it's attractive um to you know people who are listening who maybe you know are more interested in narrative film cinematographers and things like that that you could do some really interesting things with b-roll very artistic yeah i think um with a depending on the kind of documentary that you're making but if you are shooting something where you are gonna cover all of the all of the documentary with other footage so you're not gonna shoot show very much talking heads um really the b-roll really becomes a roll it's it's, it needs to be something interesting to, to look at rather than just being um, what you might see. You know, a lot of low-budget documentaries that maybe you see on... Um, we've got a TV channel called Channel 5, and they show these sort of uh, very, very cheaply made documentaries that were obviously made very, very quickly. And they they kind of they'll say something and then they'll show you a picture of it and that's it <laughs> and it's just a collection of pictures that match what the person's just said whereas um actually if if there's a more interesting sequence that does something that fits over the the whole uh the whole piece of the narrative of, that the person's talking about at that time then it Actually, it's a lot more interesting if you think about, I think, something that's influential is some films like there are great filmmakers like Errol Morris, and you think about the, the Thin Blue Line where they, he reconstructed everything, and it's really shot like a like a feature film. So they will be talking about, you know, you will yeah. be talking about the thing, and then there's, yeah. One of the really things well that you that you also do, um, which I enjoy doing when whenever I'm working on one, is uh, those little spaces in between, right? Yeah. Uh, where you create some maybe musical montages or just you know just yeah. little breakaways, which are I don't I don't remember what the word is now. Yeah. Uh, transitions, right? 
yeah. segues uh, from mm -hmm. one section to the next. Those can be very experimental and really fun to do as well. And you did a lot of that during this, which is how you keep the viewer engaged in the story uh, in a real entertaining way. Yeah, I think it's important that you um, there are those gaps and rather than it just being a transition to another scene, that there is just a, a moment to breathe. Otherwise, it becomes a lot of people talking and you get sort of 90 minutes of people talking at you, whereas if those transitions are a transition between the two. And they're almost like chapters often in a documentary. Um, yeah, if you can make a, a brief moment just for people to go, okay, well, that's what I just saw. That subject's kind of finished. Uh, and there's a moment just to breathe before you move into the next part. Yeah, otherwise, it, 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 yeah, when you, when you first put one of these cuts together and it doesn't really have it, all of that sort of stuff in it it's a, it's an awful lot of talking you know? particularly when we start out we um, i work with the same editor every time a guy called craig ennis who's uh, fantastic at understanding what i want and um we normally end up with something probably the first thing we'll ever watch will probably be about three hours and it will just be people talking and with you know an hour and a half too much talking in it so it's a case of getting it down to a sensible length, getting rid of all all of the things that you, you thought you wanted, and then and some things that you'd really like to have, but there isn't time to, and then putting in those moments just to let the story breathe a bit. You have you have scenes in this documentary that involved um, the the community, really the fans. Mm. And you created some of those uh, moments with them as they were enjoying the show, the moments when they were um, in the theater and when they were outside the theater, uh, arriving to the theater, um, talking with each other and connecting with each other. And even though it had been said, you know, people connect, people this and people that, but to actually show those things together mm. um, in the way that you did it, I think really drove the point home. Um, there's, there's always an element in a documentary that just captures you. And it could be a two-hour documentary. I think yours was, wasn't it over two hours? I mean, it just... No, no. It's about about ninety minutes, so I yeah. I try to get things just under ninety minutes, and um, and yeah, I think it's just about it's about eighty eight minutes, but it's um, yeah. Well, it was it's the way you structure the story. See, that's the other thing about a documentary. You have so many options on how you're going to structure the story. You were just talking about laying everything out on the timeline, right? Mm. And you just have all the words and what people are saying. But now you you have to sort of play with that, where to put each section here and there, how to break it up, how to insert different things that you don't even know you need yet until you do that. Um, explain that process because it's very, very creative. It I guess with the with the Fry first film, it was it was um, easier to put a first 
layer down to the structure. So this is this is I guess this is the difference between making a short documentary and a feature length one. If, if you're making a feature length film of any kind, really, you need one more than one plot. So you've got the A plot, which which runs through this, which is there's a film festival that started here, and we're here at the end. So right. we can break that down into the cinemas that it happened at. So you get those chapters. The beginning, then it was here, then it was here, then it was here. But within that, you've got the story of the individual people or or events that happened or uh, something that happened at the festival or, or a point in the festival where a thing happened. Now, there'll be things within that where you could put them at actually at any point and it's finding the right point to put them in. Those bits from the B plot. Of course, you could do it in a completely different order. You could you could put, and we did a little bit in that we put the end at the beginning mm-hmm. and um, sort of reflected back on it at the end because we wanted to start with the closing of, of, a, of a cinema. Yeah, and I, I would just say about that bit at the beginning, just because um, you mentioned the um, artistic um, sensibility, there's a, a piece at the beginning where over black you can hear them arguing and then the, there's them on stage and then at the end the camera goes all shaky, wobbly, all around everywhere through a tunnel and you get the opening credits. Actually, how that was captured was that oddly, and this is an incredible coincidence, on that day, so all these years before we were ever thinking we would shoot a documentary, I worked for them and I'd got a crew there filming that closing of the festival. And they, the crew have worked really, really hard and we'd got a, a young camera person and I said to them, you know what, you're really tired, you can go home. I'll just stand on this camera and film this angle. It's the last thing we're filming. You're free to go and do whatever. So they went, so that angle was shot by me, you know, three years before we knew there was a film festival. The bit of them arguing was where someone had started the sound recording in the um, projection prior, well before they needed to. So I found that piece of audio when I just went through all this archive. And then I found this bit of footage where what happened was it got to the end and it was pitch black in the cinema. I wasn't familiar with the camera. I didn't know how to switch it off. So I just picked it up and walked out of the cinema with it. Nice. And that's the bit of footage that we use at the start of the film because actually what happens is you see in pitch black where we whack the gain up you can you can you know you can see people's faces as the film is about to begin, and you can you can then go th- we go through a tunnel and out of the cinema, and you see all the lights. It makes quite a nice opening for the film, but it was completely pot luck. Yeah, I and mean, it creates got, a little bit of suspense, yeah. like what's coming up next. Yeah, so that was I don't know how I got to that, but um, yeah, well, the <laughs> artistic the the structuring yeah. of that, you know, uh, on the storytelling part. There's a yeah. there's a quote that you that I wanted to read that's on your website, um, mm-hmm. and and by the way, it's chriscollier.co.uk, um, and it says uh, witnessing stories, finding the extraordinary.
from within the everyday and sharing the learning. And I love it. I really love that quote. And I'm going to yeah, actually something. make sure that yeah. it goes in the notes for everybody to read it again. <laughs> oh, I think that's something, well, I know that's something. Over the last couple of years, um, um, I started to work on defining the purpose behind the work. And then in the last year, I'd really got it nailed down. And I would really encourage any filmmaker, no matter what they are working on to really define the purpose of their work and it took a long time you do, it's not something you sit down and think and i just wrote that down it was there's a lot of notes below how i arrived at that so you know you think about what it is that you do and i what i try to do when i interview somebody is be a uh, uh, almost like a mindful witness to their life because i make stories about people really and um, I'm trying to witness their life rather than be intrusive into their life. So that that was kind of the, the, the witness part. The extraordinary within the everyday was trying to find that language to explain where you can, you know, get exactly what I mean took a long time because it it is about saying that everybody, if I sat down with anyone somewhere within that conversation, there'd be something extraordinary. I refuse to believe that there is a bit of extraordinary in in everybody. And it's just finding that that piece of extraordinary, which might be a lot, actually probably is a lot. It's just taking the time to sit down with somebody. Um, and then the sharing what I've learned part really is about making the films. And then, but also in the, a lot of the work that I've done, I've always tried to, uh, use very um, new filmmakers who are maybe they're just qualified as a director or or a, a sound recordist or whatever, and maybe they're struggling to find work. And if I was able to find a place on the crew for for people who are trying to get a start or trying to learn a way in, and a lot of those people are have come through local colleges because um, there are some local colleges that we have here where you can get into the course perhaps without um, having a particularly academic background. Mm. So it might be that you're really practical and that you just need an opportunity. And there are, so it's not like going to university to become a director. This is like getting a into a, a local small course that will give you some basic media skills. But actually, if I can help somebody get some practical skills then that's also been really important as well so it's about sharing the learning through through making the films themselves but also about sharing that and learning with other people and you're doing a little bit of that in this uh in this episode of our podcast <laughs> uh sharing this with everybody now let me ask you well the- you're doing a lot of it actually i just i just <laughs> want to say actually because i I'd listened to um, a few of the podcasts. When I became aware of it, I went through and and it was interesting to hear the community that is um, there around mobile filmmaking. And there's, you know, all of the different techniques that I could hear about that I wasn't aware of. And um, all of the different bits of equipment and software, various bits of software that people are using. And there really is a community there. And I think what you're doing really is 
helping that community share each other's learning, which is a really great thing. Well, thank you. But you know what it is, is structuring their story. Uh, if you could take the millions of hours, <laughs> your, mm-hmm. your episode 140, and they're usually yeah. over an hour long. But if you could take them all and string them along in one story that gets to share the story mm. of, you know, the progress that is happening with mobile filmmaking. This is a great segue. Uh, The real question that I want to ask you now that we've gone through all this, the one that I think our listeners are really eager to hear. Now, you worked with audio. When you recorded the audio for this particular uh, documentary, you did that externally, right? Yeah. Because it's outstanding. And that's really really important that even though the audio in the normal you know um in the normal in the uh other videos and and things like that 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 you have no control over because they were captured you know by other people um but that the interviews and the things that you are capturing with you know with your cameras are good uh, and and you can hear the difference, but it adds quality to yeah. you know to your to your film. But the big question is, could you have shot this today, considering what uh, the capabilities of a take a Sony or in uh, the iPhone? Uh, the capabilities of the smartphone cameras today with the apps and so forth. Could you have shot this entire, you know, just replaced the the black magic and the Sony camera with a smartphone? Yeah, I think the there's well, there's an awful lot of it. You could definitely have shot with a smartphone. Um and I think that's that would go for any documentary. I think the smartphone is an ideal thing for somebody to tell a story with. Um the audio part is the tricky oh, part, I yeah, think. Yeah, that um, would have to I be external. The, yeah, um, so that's good to hear that, that the community is using external because I think that's always going to be the thing that a mobile phone is going to struggle to capture is because you're going to get that sound of the room. But the the cost of external equipment has come down so far now the main thing is just finding something that's got quiet preamps on it. And most of those sort of Tascam recorders that are, I don't know what they are in the US, but they're like yeah. 150 pound or something here. They, um, they've got really quiet um, preamps for to, you know, if somebody's looking to use something on a budget yeah. and the microphones have come down in cost as well. Um, and even Sennheiser made a, a sort of industry standard lab mic that that everybody used but now they now make these portable sort of new ones i can't remember what they're called but they're, they're a lot cheaper um so the equipment's there but the thing i would also suggest people get is there's some piece of software called isotope rx which uh, there are some it is very expensive, but there are some uh, budget versions of it that they make. I think there's one that's called Essentials, and it is, without doubt, the best noise reduction software that you can get. You might have to send and, us a link for that so that I can add yeah, it. Yeah, 
I will do. It's yeah. um, yeah. Um, it's I I worked. I did the sound um, restoration on a film uh, about the Blair Witch Project. Ooh, that's one of was, my um, really. Awesome. Yeah, it was. Um, so the filmmaker had all of the footage that they'd shot. So it's made entirely out of the the. I guess it's it's the filmmakers' cameras behind the scenes, so you can see the action happening over there and they're shooting it on there. Um, I guess they were high eight cameras and yeah, it's, it was an incredible film. I mean, the film has never come out because there was an issue with, with the rights because Blair, which has gone through so many different companies hands and nobody was really clear on who had the rights to the behind the scenes footage, but it was an incredible film, but it had absolutely terrible audio on it. Um, and I worked through all of that using this, using the full version of RX and there were bits where it could remove so much noise. And the important thing is without changing the sound of people's voices that there was a wow. bit where they were driving in a car and actually the filmmaker couldn't hear it where he put it together. But Nirvana was playing on the radio and you could suddenly hear the music from underneath all of this noise. Uh, there were also bits of audio that, that you discovered Somebody said something, uh, but it was hidden under this really, really loud um, sort of hum and various other things. But yeah, so it's great software if you um, if you do capture something that is you really want to use, and you just just use the microphones on the phone, something like that. They do some. It, it comes with some plugins that you can just drop into Final Cut or Premiere, and it will work on it with very very few settings for you to adjust as well which is just for the basic um, dialogue reconstruction now with the camera on the phone you know one thing is to film actors who are used to being in front of cameras but when you're interviewing regular people with no training whatsoever Mm. i don't know of anyone from the age of what uh, two weeks old <laughs> to 105 or 107 or however long people live now who has not been in front of a smartphone camera who could probably feel more comfortable and more open uh, for interviews. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true. There's a um, There's definitely a barrier that you have to get through often with people who've never sat in front of the camera before. And obviously it's not just the camera as well. And it's that whole process of you setting everything up. They get an opportunity to become nervous by, you know, lights going up and cameras coming out and maybe, and generally I would shoot with two cameras and, and then you've got all the audio equipment and then they're getting mic'd up. If you have got a particularly um, nervous person that you're going to interview, if you can just put a microphone, maybe a good quality boom mic close but overhead and just shoot them on an iPhone you, you could, or a, you know whatever phone you're using, right. you, you could get something pretty immediately. They'd be quiet. They, I, I'm assuming they would be much calmer, much quicker. You do have to work through that. I mean, you can do it with the cameras, obviously, 
but there is a process of getting somebody relaxed to being filmed. Um, I don't know if this has happened to you, if you've ever recorded uh, victims and interviewed victims. Um, uh, this one documentary that I started working on, uh, victims of drunk, drive, drunk driving, uh, someone who lost her husband to a drunk driver, and she was sitting and we were prepping things up. We had the lights and we were setting up the, the lavalier microphones and I was behind the camera and it was on a tripod and all these things. And she said that the interview felt like therapy for her because mm -hmm. she had already been through counseling and everything as a victim, but it all came back like and she said it, it just felt like someone really cares, you know, to hear yeah. my story. It's almost therapeutic. Yeah, I think that there are there are lots of examples of, um, of films that have been made about people like that. Um, yeah, that's yeah, I think that's. Um, yeah, that's that's really good to hear that that was the response. And um, yeah, it shows you did a really good job with the victim because it obviously it's obvious from from a filmmaker's perspective, you would have been incredibly nervous about that conversation as well, because no matter I mean I must have asked people hundreds and hundreds of hours worth of questions, but if I know that I'm going to sit down with somebody and I've got to ask them a difficult question, it doesn't make it any easier because their response by that. I have an idea maybe of what I think the response is, but I don't know until I've asked the question. So it must be must have been very difficult for you to sit down with the, the victim as well to just yeah. understand what what where the line is, what how I should approach this, and then you obviously feel your way into the difficult questions. Um, yeah, you almost have to yeah. have a bit of you know um, people feeling comfortable. Yeah. Uh, talking to you um mm. and also i think that again it, it just I, I have a friend who made a documentary um about child abuse and uh, the the uh, the center that um forgot what it's called child protection services yeah. or whatever it's called and she said that uh she put a call for uh you know victims of that system and she says you wouldn't believe the hundreds of people that wanted to be interviewed and wanted to be a part of this documentary and she only used a few of those people but she couldn't deny uh the people that wanted to sit down and share their story um and and it, it and I and she was saying the same thing because we were talking about mine that it's kind of therapeutic for them it kind of it does something which no one else has done for them not everybody attracts a new station you know what I'm saying and shares their story uh, and sometimes they just need that in a bit like closure in some way or feel like yeah. whatever happened to them helps somebody else but but yeah. anyways, uh, your documentary was not like that. <laughs> so <laughs> no, no, I think uh, no, uh, no. It was um, yeah. I, I also trying to in a in a 
in a way, uh, uh, be the antidote to a lot of similar documentaries, which are always looking at the darker side of this or the darker side of that. And actually, I wanted to make something uh, that was um, um, uplifting. Yeah. So rather than, you know, I've seen the things about other festivals that are just, it's all about what went wrong or what's, you know, and it's, yeah. Yeah, it was really, really, really entertaining. And and the thing is that the people that you interviewed, the fans and everything, they were, it, it was like characters in a film. Mm. Like you want to hear more from them yeah. and you get to hear about them. You get to hear more of their stories throughout, uh, like characters in, in a narrative film, practically. So you did a really yeah. good job. I mean... If I could, I'd give you an award. So you you might <laughs> you might have to make your next documentary uh, on a phone, you know. <laughs> yeah. Give give that a shot. Pun intended. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, yeah, so, I mean, just with those, um, I was lucky. Uh, I got a um, a production manager who did a lot of work going through all the fans so they didn't audition mm -hmm. um, it wasn't that bad but we did get a sense of who who everybody was and making sure that we had a good balance of people who just come to the festival people who've been going a long time and people who came as a family and people you know there's a guy who comes with his dad um, who are both doctors, which right. obviously if we meet them, you go, well, we're definitely interviewing them. That's very <laughs> Um I just wanted to, because I got lost in um, in talking about the purpose thing, because I think it, it's actually really useful for filmmakers. It really helped me. Was if you can define your purpose down into like a sentence like that, when you're partway through making a film, particularly a feature film, and you're completely lost, if you can just come back to go and go this, you know, if you can say to somebody, this is what I do and you can define it in a sentence that's really clear, it makes everything much easier. Yeah. Because, you know, you can you can really get wrapped up in uh, worrying about all of the different things. And actually, it, it affects people working on a lower budget much more because you're making a lot more decisions. You haven't got somebody making decisions about this particular piece of sound equipment or whatever, or that you're making the decisions about all of the pieces of equipment, all of the stuff. And filmmakers who are shooting on a mobile phone, taking it back, editing it, doing the sound, they've got all of that. And they've got all of the influ external influences of how the film industry works for them to go, should I be doing this? Should I be doing that? Should I be doing that? Whereas if they can just really clearly go, this is what my purpose is. This is what I do. They can have the confidence to just make their film. Yeah. It's, that's inspiring. So I just wanted to kind of get the point across of, of why it's a really good idea just to define that so, you can, so I can go, this is what I do. Do this. That's what comes out the other end. And then I can kind of forget about the external influences. Of, I mean, I've seen some amazing films this year. I went to the London Film Festival and saw um, some incredible documentaries. And the, the danger is you start to think, oh, I mean, I've just, just seen the best. I mean, some of those films will be the best documentaries that were made this year. And it's, you start to think, oh, well, and you compare your work to theirs. And if you just go, no, that's their work and this is mine. It, it, it really um, is about the yeah. story, Chris. Yeah. The story yeah. you want to tell. Absolutely. 
And I think that's yeah. the whole thing, especially in documentary filmmaking, because, you know, like like when I started talking about this, how fluid the story is from the get go. You have the bare bones and now you're just adding the meat. You're sort of reversing <laughs> the process of it. And it can when you're listening to all the stories and everything and you're thinking, oh, I could go here. I could talk about that. I could structure it this way. I could structure it the other way. Um, and it's like, well, just just make sure that you have the entire story. That really is what it is yeah. that you've covered your story. And then you can play with that. Right. Absolutely. Chris, is there yeah. anything else that I'm missing that that we haven't shared? I think just um, on the mobile, on shooting with the mobile, um, I think it's, I think potentially it's the documentary is the best genre to get into, into film with a, with a mobile phone or on a low budget in that you're not reliant on all of the other elements that are required to make a film. You can just, it can be you on your own. You can be even be telling your own story and, and with a mobile phone you can tell it in an incredibly personal way um, and you can tell the small personal stories that maybe haven't been told yet um, so I think it's um, it's incredible that they've got to a point now and the, I mean the quality of the video on a mobile phone is yeah incredible quality and I've heard you talk about some of the films that have been released and I know well, they've been being released for some time, and some of the mobile phones at the time initially um, were just HD. But I know now some of the mobile phones shoot at incredibly high resolutions um, and have got a whole host of apps and things to make the footage uh, give you more control over the footage. I think there's never been a better time to just go, there's that story of that guy over there, or what about my story? Maybe I'll just tell that. And just pick up your phone and start doing it. Yeah, and talk about really owning your story. If you're making a documentary mm. and you really want to own that story and not have any influence from, uh, like yeah. you do when you're f someone is funding the story, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh, that is the best way to do it. It's a, it's a dream come true for a documentary filmmaker, which is, mm. again, I'm twisting your arm. You should do it. Mm. <laughs> so, all right. Well, yeah. unless unless there's anything else that we haven't shared, guys, you know, um, I'm going to be writing. I, I sometimes forget to, a lot of times forget to mention, I'm going to be writing a, and sharing an article on uh, our medium publication for smartphone filmmaking. We're going to put the link in the notes as well. Um, and there's also the trailer. I'm going to share the link to the trailer uh, on the notes. But in the article, we'll share some photos and those links as well. So um, go and click on that. If you're driving, don't. <laughs> but, you, but it's there. Uh, Chris, uh, uh, you are on social media. And we're going to put all those links there as well. Um, we're going to put everything Mastodon, which is, believe it or not, how Chris and I, uh, bumped into each other. Uh, and then you're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, and then we'll also share your website. Uh, Chris, thank you so much for sharing 
everything you know and everything, you, all the industry secrets with our listeners. Really appreciate that a lot. And um, yeah, so if you want to say uh, goodbye to our listeners. Yeah, thank, thanks very much for inviting me on. Um, yeah, it was um, strange to meet on Mastodon. I just uh, opened an account. <laughs> me too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, thanks very much for inviting me on. It's really, um, it's been really interesting talking to you, and really, it's been really interesting finding out about the uh, community as well. Thank you. <laughs>